Father, please do help us to give attention to you as you speak to us. Um, Help us to focus and concentrate. Help us to hear what you say, to understand it, to see your son more clearly, to see more clearly what it is, to treat him as who he is. And we do ask it, as we always do, through him, uh, the one who opens the way to draw near. Amen. Okay, we're reading this psalm because Jesus points to it. King David spoke it a thousand years before Jesus was born. Jesus quoted it because it speaks about him. It spoke to the ancients. It told them what to hope for as they looked forward. It speaks to us and it tells us who we trust in when we trust Jesus. We don't get to decide who Jesus is. It's better we don't. We get to see who Jesus is. And I'm going to suggest that as we read this psalm, I get summarized in saying we see Jesus as king and as priest and as warrior. King, priest, and warrior. Is there one aspect or another of those which you tend to cling to? The kind of your mind runs to naturally. It's the one you tend not to think about. An aspect you tend to cling to, an aspect you tend not to think about. Look at this, um, the, the, the heading in both italics, if you're looking at most Bibles, there's, there's a heading in italics and it's not part of the ancient text. Uh, in the ESV there's a heading in small caps and it is actually part of the ancient text of the Bible. Uh, this is a psalm of David. It was written by him. Uh, we heard Jesus say in Mark chapter 12, that David wrote it in the Holy Spirit. God spoke through David, and he speaks this to us. In verse 1, King David speaks about his Lord. Uh, Verse 1 of Psalm 110. Uh, He speaks about his Lord. He speaks about someone who's greater than him. He, He speaks about someone who is greater than the greatest king of Israel. Someone he serves. In every psalm, the the writer recognizes the Lord God is greater than him. There are other psalms uh, which will point uh, beyond the reigning king of Israel uh, to a king who is coming, the Messiah. But only here does the king himself explicitly recognize that the coming Messiah is greater than him. Only here, the royal speaker speaks about a more than royal successor. Jesus put the puzzle this way in uh, Mark chapter 12. Uh, David calls the Christ Lord, so how can he be his son? Uh, He is criticizing the first century scribes for failing to pay attention to the psalm. They looked for a Messiah who was just like David. Maybe even less than David. They've been satisfied with someone who's nearly as good as David. But they should have been looking for more. They should have been looking for more because David pointed to a more than royal, I think in the end, more than human Christ. And in this psalm, David points to him uh, and builds a psalm around two things that God has said. Uh, Two statements God makes in verse 1 and verse 4. The Lord God speaks about the king's Lord. 
Now, you're probably aware, maybe, aware, maybe some of you aren't, that the, the Lord in all capitals uh, is not so much the title of God that he's Lord and Master, it's his name. Uh, behind the English, all caps is the Hebrew name, uh, the name of the living, true and holy God. Uh, Y-H-W-H, we tend to, pronounce, to say Yahweh, trying to guess what the vowels would be. But the ancients feared saying the Lord's name, so they simply called him Lord. This psalm provokes our curiosity when we hear King David speak about someone who is greater than him. It grabs our attention as we hear the Lord God himself speak about that greater son of David. Let's get into the psalm. The New Testament writers, they quote and allude to this psalm more than any other. Uh, they take bits of its message and weave it into their messages. And I'll, I'll share the list of uh, places where they do that uh, on the community site. Uh, I'll leave you to read those, uh, maybe discuss them with your, with your discipleship group. But today I want to just look at the various bits and pieces of the psalm uh, to focus on looking at it rather than looking at where it's quoted. Uh, and to think through how do those bits and pieces work together as a whole. What did it tell the ancients as they looked forward to Jesus? What does it tell us about Jesus? And is there one aspect or another that you tend to cling to? Or is there an aspect you tend to forget? So we see Jesus as king and priest and warrior. Verse 1 to 3 describes Jesus, David's Lord as his king who rules. Uh, he even rules King David. When David calls him Lord, he's saying that this one is his master, that he is the Christ's slave. Now that makes sense as we hear what God, the Lord God himself says to the Christ. He invites the Christ to come and sit in the place of honor and authority, to sit at God's right hand until he makes the Christ's enemies his footstool. The Lord God himself here is the warrior, I think. Uh, God, God, God's king sits, he waits uh, the, for the Lord to give him victory over his enemies. Psalm 2 showed us those enemies. We saw that last week. Uh, people who fight for freedom from God and his Christ. People who prefer self-rule to God's rule. Maybe the preference, but it's not going to be their experience. Eventually, everyone will bow the knee to Jesus. Everyone will bow. But you see how these ones bow. In verse 1, they bow as footstools. The, the picture is Christ leaning back and putting his feet up on his enemies, demonstrating that he has triumphed over them. The evil spiritual powers, the rebel humans, are shamed and humiliated as they... They kneel under Jesus' feet as his footstool. They won't buy because they've been won over, these ones. It's not because they've been convinced that his rule is better than self-rule. They bow because they have no other option. The Lord God tells his Christ to sit and wait... Well, he makes his enemies 
the footstool, humiliated, Christ given the victory. But then as we read on, the Lord and his Christ are united in their works. They do everything together. Verse 2 describes the Lord God wielding the Christ's mighty scepter and the Christ ruling in the midst of his enemies. They, they, they work together, united. They, do, they, they accomplish their purposes together. And verse, verse 3, the Christ's rule spreads through his army. Uh, an army who offer themselves freely. They, they willingly sacrifice themselves in service to him. Verse 3, there are no unwilling conscripts in the, his army. All his people want to be his people. They're eager to serve him. Their clothes mark them apart as holy to God. I'm not coming to say what that last little bit, uh, whether dew and dawn imagery is about them suddenly appearing, uh, going to victory, or whether it's them staying fresh as they push on, got the freshness of dew. But the overall picture here, verses 1 to 3, is clear. David's Lord is the king who rules. Jesus is the king who rules. Through the Lord God's work and through his willing servant's service, Christ's rule expands towards the day when all his enemies bow. Verse 4 shifts from talking about Jesus as king to describing him as priest. Now, King David wasn't a priest, he couldn't be a priest. Uh, There was an absolute separation between monarchy and priesthood. King David and his descendants were from the tribe of Judah. The priests were from the tribe of Levi. Someone was in one tribe or the other. Two different tribes meant inevitable separation. Kings weren't priests and priests weren't kings. But David says to his Lord, who is clearly the king... Verse 4, he says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's trying to hear God take a note, isn't it? To hear God underlining it by saying he won't change his mind. Why does he say that? Why does he take the oath? Why does he say he won't change his mind? Because there are times when he has changed his mind. He has given a blessing and then removed it because of people's sin. So God told the Exodus generation to go in and take the promised land that he would give it to them. But he removed his support from them when they hardened their hearts and refused to go in. God gave Saul kingship over Israel. But he took it from him because King Saul disobeyed God by presuming to act as a priest. He gave Eli's descendants the privilege of serving as priests. But he took it from them because they dishonored him. God told Israel that they would have peace in the promised land. But he sent enemies against them because of their sin. Did God change his mind? Well, yes. Did God know he would change his mind? Well, yes. But we're not here to dig into philosophical or theoretical questions and think about God's sovereignty and how all that works together. And mention when God did change his mind because verse 4 stands apart. His oath is not vulnerable to human weakness. 
Nothing will change God's mind about this. He will inevitably do it, certainly. He will do it, nothing will stop him, not even human weakness and sin will stop him doing this. His Christ will certainly be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is a king who appeared from nowhere in Genesis chapter 14 after Abraham defeated a whole lot of enemy kings. He's a priest as well as a king. A a priest, a a mediator, someone who stands in the middle between, stood in the middle between Abraham and the Lord God. And God here says that his Christ is a king priest like Melchizedek. Which, as Hebrews explores, uh, implies an end to the Levitical priesthood. But more crucially, right here, it implies that an all-powerful king would not solve Israel's problems. See, on on the surface, the barrier to Old Testament Israel thriving and enjoying peace Uh, in the promised land. On the surface, the barrier to Old Testament Israel and joint peace in the promised land was their enemies. Philistines, Edomites, Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Romans. Israel wanted a king to lead them to victory. They wanted a king to bring them peace. But over and over in the Old Testament, God explained why they faced enemy after enemy after enemy. It was never because they didn't have enough military power to fight the enemies away. God could have defeated any of their enemies. But God actually sent the enemies to defeat them. He sent enemies to discipline and judge their rebellion and sin. You see, before and after King David, Israel's leaders, they they kept failing to lead God's people in righteousness. The people rebelled against God, the kings rebelled against God, even the best of kings rebelled against God. So the Lord God sent enemy nations against them. Over and over, Israel worshipped idols, the Lord God sent enemies to defeat them. Israel repented, God gave them peace. Israel worshipped idols. The Lord God sent enemies to defeat them. Israel repented. God gave them peace. Israel worshipped idols. The Lord God sent enemies against them. And the cycle just keeps turning round and round and round. God's people needed more than a king to break that cycle. They needed a priest. A priest who would never be removed for abusing his responsibility and privilege. A priest to stand between them and God and bring forgiveness by offering sacrifice. A priest to deal with the sin which rose up from within them. And God promised that priest. Only a priest king could bring lasting peace, eternal peace. Because only a priest king could bring forgiveness by offering sacrifice. And defeat the sin which rose up within them. See, I think that's why the verses about Christ as warrior who wins come after the priest Melchizedek stuff. 
At first glance, these verses, they feel like they're exploring verse 1, not verse 4. And I kind of wonder why they didn't come first. But God's Christ can only achieve ultimate victory as a king who blesses God's people because he is the priest king. Because he's the priest who brings forgiveness and transformation for God's people. So they're included in the blessing of victory rather than victims of the warrior's attack. So verses 5 to 7 are about Christ as the warrior who wins. He defeats his enemies. If you take time to read this and look at the word he and try and work out who he is and who you are, who the word you refers to, I, I find it got puzzling. If you find it hard to work out who's who in these verses, you're not alone. I spent quite a while uh, figure, looking at it and who's spoken to in verse 5, who's referred to he in each verse. So is verse 5 talking to the Lord God about Christ at his right hand? Or is it talking to Christ about the Lord God at his right hand? I think it could go either way. But I lean towards hearing it spoken to Christ. Spoken to Christ, assuring him of the Lord God's support. Telling Christ that God will, what God will do on the day of God's wrath. Now that's partly because verse 4 is spoken to Christ, so it kind of feel the you there feels okay to read on to verse 5 and again another you. But also because uh, speaking about Christ having the Lord's support feels like a good support for a good fit with verse 1 where the, the Lord promises to give his Christ victory. Let me try again at that. Let's just look at verse 1 and verse 4. So verse 4, the picture is of Christ at the right hand of God in the place of honor and authority. In verse 5, the picture is of Christ as a warrior with God at his right hand to support and enable him as he goes into battle. The Lord God protecting his king, the Lord God fighting on his behalf, bringing him inevitable and absolute victory. So verse 6, executing judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, shattering the chiefs over the wide earth, the Lord giving victory to his Christ. That's who he is, the Lord acting. But then verse 7 the word he seems to refer to Christ. Uh, refer to Christ um, sustained and supported in his work. Pursuing his enemies, stopping to drink and be refreshed so that he can continue until he's finished. Pursuing his enemies until he catches and destroys them all. Lifting up his head in absolute contrast to those who bow their heads under his feet. That's the, the tricky verses to read. Because just be that he, that he is about Christ all the way through. But it is about Christ as warrior. It's about Christ as the warrior who wins. His army of willing volunteers in verse 3, they're not to be seen. It's just him and God 
going into battle. The Lord God wins the battle. His Christ, he's so united with his Christ in all that they do. But Christ is in the foreground in verse 7. Christ is the warrior who wins. The warrior who defeats all his enemies. No one will stand against him. It's a description of God and his Christ coming in final judgment. King David spoke about Jesus a thousand years before his birth. Uh, This is a promise. I think, first of all, we need to think of the Lord Jesus holding on to it as he went to the cross. He trusted God to come through on what God had said through David. And God has kept his promise to his Christ. Jesus is the king who rules. He is a priest forever. He is the warrior who will win. King, priest, warrior. Is there one of those aspects you tend to cling to? Is there one you tend not to think about so much? I think as we think through how as we think through how these these things land in us for Monday to Sunday, what are the implications are? I think I want to work back through the back through the psalm in the opposite direction. Jesus is the warrior who wins, so don't try to ignore him. He's willing to be your priest forever. Lean into his sacrifice. He's the king who rules. Serve him eagerly. Let's think on each of those things. Yeah, conclusion. Jesus is the warrior who wins. Don't try to ignore him. Uh, there's no getting away from God and his Christ. Uh, verse 5 to 7, they're, the, 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 they're about the future judgment. They're about wrath and justice. And it will be terrifying to face God and his Christ as enemy warriors. People will look at this and say it's a picture or right. But they're wrong when they say it's just a picture. God's judgment will be so dreadful he chooses to picture it as kings broken in pieces, as territories full of dead bodies. God will come in wrath and anger against spiritual powers and against humans who fight for freedom from him. He will punish those who act as if they'd be better off if he didn't rule them. We thought together last week about how offensive that is. It puts the living, true, and holy God in company with evil oppressors from history, from Mao, Pol Pot, Stalin, Hitler. A tyrant to escape from, to run to for a better life. But the opposite is true. It's offensive when we think and speak and act as if we would be better off if God didn't rule us. When we, when we refuse our best guide, we do damage to ourselves and others and the world we live in. Christ will come to judge. His judgment will be perfectly fair and terrifyingly dreadful. It's confronting to hear the Bible say it. It's supposed to be confronting. 
you're warned now, when we get to warn friends now. Jesus is the warrior who wins. In the end, no one will ignore him. Don't try to ignore him now. That's the first implication. Jesus is willing to be your priest forever, so lean into his sacrifice. Uh, your great need and my great need is the same one that ancient Israel faced. We need more than a king to fight for us. We need a priest to stand between us and God to bring forgiveness by offering sacrifice. A priest to defeat sin which rises up within us. And Jesus is that priest. He gave his life as a ransom. He offered himself once and once only to bring eternal redemption. He remains eternally the priest whose presence in heaven speaks the sacrifice he made. He is able to save to the uttermost completely those who draw near to God through him. You can draw near to God through him. Hear that assurance. He's the priest who can bring you to God. Whatever you've done, whatever rises up in your memory, he can deal with it. Dealt with it by his death. You can draw near to God through him. He can wash you clean. Jesus is willing to be your priest forever. Lean into his sacrifice. Trust it. Trust him. That's the second implication. Jesus is the king who rules. Serve him eagerly. I was going to say Jesus is the king who rules. Stop pretending he isn't. And we're tempted to, aren't we? Um, I think we're tempted, including those who have gone all in with Jesus, we're tempted to act as if God, as if Jesus isn't the king who rules. We're tempted to act as if we'd be better off if he didn't rule us. Tempted to act as if Jesus isn't our king. But Jesus is the king who rules and that means you're not you're not in charge of your life Jesus is when you know what he wants and choose to do what you want well you're pretending you're king when you choose to to be carefully avoid finding out what he wants so you can do what you want you're pretending you're king It's time to stop pretending. It's time to treat him as the king who he already is. It's time to serve him eagerly. That's the emphasis in verse 3, isn't it? It's not just about not pretending he isn't king. It's about serving him eagerly. Christ's loyal subjects are described as willing soldiers. No conscripts. They act as if they're better off because he rules. They act as if they're better off because he rules. So they treat him as king because he is. They offer themselves freely because they realize it's good to offer themselves in his service. It really is better to serve him than to serve self. It really is better to serve Jesus as king than to serve self. As if you are king. 
And the time to serve in Christ's army, it's now. So I, I think there's a separation here. The day of God's wrath is still future, the last few verses. The day of Christ's power, that's already come. The time to serve Christ in his army is now while we wait. And there's bread to that service. It includes godliness and holiness, which aims to please him in everything. Commitment to your brothers and sisters in Christ, concern for those who don't yet know him, all for his glory. Serving and honoring him. The holy war Christ's people serve in is the war against sin and unbelief. The holy war Christ's people serve in is the war against sin and unbelief. The sin and unbelief in our own hearts as we apply his word to ourselves. The sin and unbelief in one another as we speak his word and comfort and care for and challenge one another. The sin and unbelief in those who don't yet trust him as we aim to introduce them to Jesus as the one priest king, the one who brings forgiveness, the one who rules well. We fight with the same love in our hearts that was in Christ's heart as he went to the cross, aiming to see forgiveness. If Jesus isn't your king, it's not too late. For friends, it's not too late. He's the warrior who wins. Don't go try to ignore him. He's, the, he's willing to be their priest, your priest forever. Lean into his sacrifice. He's the king who rules. Serve him eagerly. Jesus is your king. See the goodness and live the implications. We have a priest who will not fail us. Lean into his sacrifice. We have a king who will not fail us. Serve him eagerly. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you revealed your son a millennium before he came and before that too. I thank you that your word speaks so clearly about the Lord Jesus the greater than King David, son of David, your son come to take on flesh and bring forgiveness. Thank you that he is warrior and priest and king. Father, please, for ourselves and for those around us, help us to see you Jesus as the warrior who will come to, to judge and destroy all rebellion and unbelief. For ourselves and others to see Jesus as the priest forever who has brought eternal salvation as the king who rules, whom to serve is to pursue our own best good. It's in him we pray. Amen.